0: As you find your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We are, uh, I was gonna say we're back in Hebrews, but we're, we're just in Hebrews. We're gonna, uh, have some fun today. Uh, for nine chapters, really for, for the, the first nine chapters of the book, the writer of Hebrews has been formulating an argument, presenting a doctrinal treatise, if you will, regarding the superiority, superiority of Jesus uh, to anything and to anyone and really over anyone and over anything. And, and uh, you know, we've talked about his superiority to angels and to Moses and to uh, the Old Testament priesthood. And, and just we've kind of gone on and on and, and talked about what the Scripture has. Arguably, this book is one of the most difficult to understand and apply uh, because it is the most Jewish of all New Testament books, so it's a little foreign to us in some respects. It is fraught with theological truth. It is fraught with challenges to the life of the believer. And, and so it's been, it's been a challenge. I, I've never studied so hard and felt so unprepared, I, I don't think, I, you know, th- for a period of time. Uh, but it's good. It's rich. And we come today... Uh, to a section of scripture that, that is really a summary, if you will, a summation uh, regarding the superiority of Jesus in his ministry. Now it really sums up the first nine chapters, but specifically uh, the superiority of his sacrifice and his priesthood uh, over chapter 7 through 9 is really all summed up in the section that we're going to read. Now, as, as we read our text and as we uh, evaluate it, you're probably going to be saying, I've heard this before. And you're probably going to say, well, I, I heard that last week. And you might even say, I, I heard that the week before that, and, and maybe that was the week before that. And you might even come to the conclusion, what does the preacher do all week? I mean, should he get paid? This is the same stuff. Week after week after week. I'll tell you, Monday morning, I I, I I don't know if it was... I think Sunday night I read the text. And, and, and by Monday morning, I'm just thinking, God, should I should I go somewhere else to preach? I feel like I've been saying this over and over. And then it hit me. If I'm saying this over and over, I'm in pretty good company. Because the writer of Hebrews... Keep saying. By the way, the Holy Spirit of God, through the author of Hebrews, keeps saying again and again this and this and this. And so as we come to our text, we're going to overview some things and you're going to go, oh, yeah, I've heard that. But in the context of that, we're going to read what I believe is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. And so... Join in, we're going to read this, and then we're going to, really we're going to kind of wrap up the theological section today, and we're going to move into the more doct- or the more practical part of the book of Hebrews for the next few weeks. we got a big section, so just kind of bear with me, beginning in verse 1. For since the law, we've heard this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." "...to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest daily, or stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, here's that word again, can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered... But when Christ... Let me find my place. "...had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Now listen to this. This is that statement. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then He adds... I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Shall we pray together? Father, uh, a review, a reminder, a summation of the superiority of Jesus, the awesomeness of His sacrifice, and so God, opened the eyes of our heart uh, that we might understand uh, the gravity of what Jesus has done for us and the magnitude, Father, of the effect it should have, that it must have on our life personally. Father, I pray for that man, that woman, that young person in the auditorium this morning that is yet to surrender to Jesus Christ. Lord, may they discover that Jesus, uh, once for all, made a sacrifice to pay for their sins. May this be the day that they come to know you. But Father, for the believer, and most of us fall into that category, today may we understand the the magnitude of what it means, uh, what Jesus has done for us. May we see uh, what we're to do in response to who we are and what we've become. So come and have your way in our life. May your spirit search our hearts. And God, will be careful to give you the honor and the glory for all that you do. And we pray, Father, in that awesome name, the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, amen, amen. Well, in bringing this doctrinal section to the close, the writer makes again, he makes this profound statement. I'm going to read it again and I'm going to tell you what it means and we're going to talk about it. He says, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So here's what we're going to talk about. Christ crucified. Christ was crucified. So God was satisfied, so sinners can be justified, and believers are being or are becoming sanctified. Now that is the that is what is happening in that one little verse. Think about this. Christ was crucified, so God would be satisfied, and sinners like us could be justified, and then as believers we can become sanctified. Now, that's all there. You say, I don't see all that. It is there. We're gonna. I'm going to show you because this thing is rich. Now, it kind of pervades through the whole section. But at the end of the day, what, what the writer was saying to these Jewish believers, you, listen, you don't want to go back to the old. The old didn't work. It didn't get the job done. But Jesus did some work. I mean, Jesus did some work. And when he did the work, it was finished. And so what does that mean for you and me? Let's talk about that. First of all, Christ crucified. For by a single offering, it begins in verse 14. Look back up in verse 12. But it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, a single just one. I've been reading in Leviticus. I mean, that's just kind of where I've been as part of my quiet time for the last few days. You... you you ought to just go this week and read, you know, some in the first eight or ten chapters of Leviticus and hear about all the offerings. And they had to slaughter a bull for this and a sheep for that and a goat for that and a pigeon for that. And then, a, you know, and it's just unbelievable. But Jesus made a single sacrifice. He was crucified. Christ. Crucified. John MacArthur tells this story. There was an old church in England years and years ago had over the arch as you walked into the courtyard of the church over the arch. It said, we preach Christ crucified. And they had God fearing pastors and they would preach the gospel of Jesus and they would preach about the blood atonement and they would preach about how Jesus sacrificed for sins and they preached and they preached and they preached and And, but after a few generations, Some younger preachers came up and, and some different preachers and they said, you know, do we really need to talk about Christ crucified? It's kind of a messy thing to talk about the blood. It's kind of a messy thing to talk about the death. And so they just, why don't we just preach Christ as a model and Christ as an example? And they begin to preach Christ as a model. And an example, and it turns out over time, according to the story, the ivy began to grow up, and it grew over that word "crucified." And so, in the arch, it just said, "We preach Christ." Well, a few years passed and a few new preachers came along, and they said, "Well, you know, why do we need to just preach about Jesus? I mean, why, don't, why don't we just, why don't we just stand up and talk about being a good person and tell some inspiring stories? Why don't we just talk about how to be?" Uh, about moral rearmament and how to treat people right and so they began to to just preach stuff this guy's opinion that guy's opinion and, and, and the ivy began to grow in and, it, and, and it, it covered not only the word christ but it covered over the word christ and so the arch of the church just says we preach just we preach the apostle paul writing to the church at corinth said, we determined to know nothing among you except Christ and what? Him crucified. The only message he had was Christ crucified. And I'll stand before it and I'll tell you, and if it ever changes, you run my tail off that quick, we will stand on this platform and preach Christ Crucified. There is no... Yeah, go ahead. Give it up. We will preach Christ crucified because there, there's no other name given among heaven. Now, why must we? Uh, now, I know when you talk about a cross and you talk about nails and, and you talk about a blood sacrifice and you talk about sin and holiness and somebody's got to die... A lot of people get worked up about that, but I want to tell you, here's why we got to preach Christ crucified. Look, if you will, up in verse 1. In verse 1, it says this. It says, For since the law has but a shadow, it was a shadow of the good things. It wasn't a good thing, but it was a shadow. Instead of the true form of these realities. look at this, it can never, look at that word again, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. Nothing else. You can preach anything else. You can preach religion. You can preach moralism. You can preach humanism. You can preach secularism. You can preach naturalism. You can preach anything you want. But there's nothing that will make perfect Those who draw near to God. And then he tells us why. Why the law wouldn't do that is because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. It's impossible. In fact, he goes on to say, quoting from the Old Testament, he goes on to think, Jesus said to God before He ever took on human flesh, and, and He said, listen, He said, Father... Gifts and offerings, sacrifices and offerings, that's not what you're looking for. Now, God required it, but God didn't want that. What God was looking for was an obedient heart. And so Jesus, in in eternity past, said, listen, you prepared for me a body. And Jesus said, Lord, I've come to do your will, quoting out of the Psalms. And then look what happens in, in verse, I think it's in verse 12. Let's, let's see if that's it. Uh, maybe, it may be 10 and 11. But, but notice what it says there. Uh, it says every priest stands daily in his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which again, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, <laughs> but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand. Of the, why did he sit down? Cause it was finished. Jesus did at the cross what nobody, what nothing else could do, and that is to to finish the work. Listen, you don't. You if it's not finished, you don't stop. I, the other day I was running. It was whatever day it was, kind of humid. Maybe it was Wednesday, and I was listening to a sermon, and and I'm running along, and I'm, and, and I, I had to go four miles. And the reason I had to go four miles is because I went out to. And if you go out too, to you, you get back, you gotta go too back. And, and, and I'm just, and I mean, I was, I mean, at three, at three and a half miles, I was, I was finished. But I wasn't done. I couldn't sit down cause I wasn't done. Listen, when you're not done, you can't finish. That's why in the tabernacle, there was no chair in the holy place, the most holy place. You know why there was no chair? The work was never finished. But when Jesus, one time at the cross, bowed his head and gave up the ghost, right before he did that, he said, what did he say? It is finished. So so listen, we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified by a single offering. But secondly, look in our verse, verse 14. Not only do we see... Uh, By a single offering, but it says he has perfected for all time. Now in that little phrase, he has perfected for all time. There are two basic ideas. Uh, Well, they're not basic, two profound ideas. Let me, we're going to break them apart. Now you're not, you're going to say, I don't really see that, but I promise it's there. And and the first, he has perfected for all time. First of all, what that says is that God is satisfied. Christ, when Christ was crucified, God, was satisfied. Now here's how I know. Because by a single offering. By a single offering. Here's how I know because when when he went to heaven, he he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because it's finished. And so we know that the wrath of God, the wrath of God had been satisfied. Uh, listen, the Bible says, and let's see if I can find my place here. Uh, the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 15, I think it's verse 34, the Bible says that, that God turned away from him as he endured the wrath and the punishment first as God turned away from him. And, 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 and so what happened was when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What had happened is God had turned away from him and Jesus was enduring the wrath, the punishment of a holy God. Now you can read about how the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness, Romans chapter 1. You can read in Ephesians 2 where it talks about that we were dead in our sins and that we were objects of God's wrath. But God, because of the great love He loved us, Ephesians 2, 4 tells us, made us alive in Christ. By grace, by grace, we're saved. And, it's, and so God, what it tells us is that God, at that moment on the cross, God was satisfied. Look in uh, Hebrews 10, look in verse 9. He says... Um, he says, Then Adam, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And so we've been sanctified. Now what does that mean? Well, look all the way down to verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now watch this. This is not clear enough in the ESC. But he says, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any Let's insert one word there. There is no longer any need for an offering for sin. Why? Because sins have been paid for. God is satisfied. God was never satisfied with the Old Testament sacrifice. All they could do is put off the inevitable for a year. That's why they come every year. Matter of fact, we didn't look. We didn't really focus on this up about verse three. What it says, what the offering, what the sacrifices and offering did. You know what they did? They reminded people of their sins. Here's what I know: When I come to God and get on my knees and I confess before God and I acknowledge before God that I've sinned against Him, what God does is set me free. When they came and brought an offering, what it did? It reminded them, "You're guilty." You're, you're guilty. And if you mess up, you bring an offering and next year you come back on the day of atonement because you're guilty. But what Jesus, but because, because God's satisfied, that, that's not how it works for us. See, we, we can be made free because God has been satisfied. When Jesus, this is, listen, when Jesus was crucified, Then God was satisfied. And because He was, sinners can be justified. That's the second half of that phrase to be made perfect, made perfect forever. Go back in, in the middle of verse 14. Notice how it says that He has perfected for all times. Now, think about this. That's how we can be justified. Phil Newton made this observation in his message. What, what the writer does here, he combines two ideas. He can, he combines the idea of being justified and the idea of being sanctified. When the writer says that, that he's been perfected, in fact, verse 10 uses kind of a, 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 uses a perfect tense, which is completed action, to talk about that we're completely or totally sanctified. The idea, the idea, according to Newton, and he's correct, is that that we are justified. To be, to be perfected in Christ means that we are justified. Now, that, that's theological language. Justification, if you will, it's a forensic or a legal term. It's, it's a declaration that says because of the death of Christ, you are made righteous. It, it is God declaring. To be justified means God has declared... That you are righteous, that I am righteous. Now we may not act righteous, but in terms of our standing before God, He has declared us to be innocent and righteous uh, before It's almost in the court of law. Now, I, and I've thought about giving you an example, and I thought that would be judgmental, but uh, so I won't do that. But, but. We've seen some of the public trials where people have gone on trial and, and everybody knows they're guilty except the jury. And so the jury says not guilty. And and we all know they're guilty, but they get, they're declared innocent, right? I should give you the name, but I can't do that. But we know they're guilty, but they're declared to be innocent. Well, To be justified is when God looks at you and me and He looks at our sin, and God declares us to be innocent because of our faith, but we know we're guilty. But in terms of our standing, we are declared to be righteous. Now, another way to say that, we could call that... Positional sanctification or positional righteousness. It means that in position, God looks at Mike Phillips because of my faith in Jesus and God declares that I am righteous. I have a right standing before God. That's the idea. That's what it means to to be perfected. Now, now I know it's pretty, pretty theologically... Pretty theological, but what all that means, one writer said it this way. It, it says, he says, Jesus came to be a high priest, and the body was prepared for him that by offering by, by the offering of it he might put sinful men, listen to this, he might put sinful men forever into perfect religious relation to God. And so to be declared righteous, to be justified, to be made perfect, means that we have. An open relationship to God. We can come into His presence anytime we want. We can draw near. We're going to talk about that next week in, in great detail. But but it means to be perfected means that, that we have access to God anytime, place, anywhere. And the law could never do that, ever. The, remember, the priest went in once a year by himself, couldn't take anybody with him. We can come into his presence any moment. Made perfect. Now interesting, that is, and so we're declared to be righteous. Now, now what that, what that says about our standing before God, listen, when you get, when you get a right standing before God, listen, that lasts forever. That salvation, it lasts forever. Notice what the text says. There's, there's three ideas here, three factors in this little phrase that tell us that, that we're listen when you give your life to Jesus, man, you're secure forever. There are people that struggle with whether or not is there, is my salvation going to last. But there are three reasons in this text of how we know. First of all, the word "perfect" means to to complete, to bring something to an end. In other words, it, it's it's finished. Secondly, the uh, the grammar the word perfected. It's a verb. It's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense means that something happened in the past, but it has ongoing results that continue forever. That's what makes it perfect. And so the, the, the verb tense tells us that we're secure forever. And then the third word is the word, the modifying word in the NIV or in the ESV. It says for all time, some translations use the term forever. And the idea is forever. Now, how long is forever? It's for all time. Well, how long is for all time? It's, it's forever. Well, how long is forever? Well, it's for all time. How long is for all time? You, you get the idea. And so what the writer was saying is that when you... Listen, when you're made right by Jesus, when you get a right standing with God because He's satisfied, because Christ was crucified, listen, that lasts forever. See, too many of us... Here's what we... A lot of times we think... That we give our life to Jesus and we get on probation. Anybody ever been on probation? Don't raise your hand. Don't... <laughs> we don't want to know that unless it was like academic probation. But but if you get on probation, what probation means? What probation means is that we're going to watch you for a while, and if while we're watching you, you you do good enough. Then at the end of a period of time, you're going to be set free. You're going to be invited in or whatever the case may be. If, you're, if it's legal, you're going to be set free at the end. If, it's, if, if you're on academic probation or whatever, or, or you're trying to join a fraternity or whatever, if you perform well enough for a certain time, then after, at the end of that time, you can come on in. But, but we don't, listen, you don't come to Jesus to get probation. When you come to Jesus, you get Salvation. That means, that means your sins are taken away. And remember what it says in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these trespasses and sins, there is not any need for an additional offering. So sinners in Christ are justified. Now that brings us to really the, the, what I wanted to talk about, really. And I'm talking to me. But today, uh, I, I was, I had lunch with a guy this week and he says, you know, it just seems like, I mean, it seems like you talk to me every week. And I'm thinking, actually, I feel like I'm talking to me every week. And, and I really feel like today, because we get to this, this, this fourth point, look down at verse 14 again. Think about this. Christ crucified. That's done. God is satisfied. That's done. Sinners justified. The moment you're saved, the moment you put your faith in Christ, that is done. But look at this last phrase. Those who are being sanctified. Now some translations would just say it, they just say those who are sanctified. That is not an accurate translation. The, the, the verb tense of that participle there is present. And the idea is, uh, Christ died or was crucified, God is satisfied, Believers, sinners are justified. All that has happened. But the idea of being sanctified is an ongoing process. Now, there's a couple ideas here. Let me just give you the first idea and we'll move on for a minute because I want to explain it in detail. The first idea is that if you've been justified, you're in the process of being sanctified. Now, what that should indicate, what that should mean from a practical standpoint, is if I'm saved here... There needs to be some incremental changes in my life as I move on to here. If you got saved back here, and you're not any different way down here, can I tell you something? You probably didn't get saved here. Because what the writer is saying is those who have been made perfect are being sanctified. Now we gotta now the problem is we gotta define that word sanctified. Because this is pretty theological. Um, Any cowboys? Any? There's one or two here. Cowboy? Yeah. There's there's a couple. Anybody ever rode a cutting horse? Just go ahead. uh, This is okay. All right. Good. You rode a cutting horse. I've never ridden a cutting horse. I've been to a cutting. But here's what I want you to think about. These guys. They'll understand this. What, if you go to a cutting contest, what'll happen is this old boy will get on his horse and this horse has been perfectly trained and and they will assign him, and I'll just say instead of a cow, they will, he will pick out a cattle out there and the job of that rider in in that, the job of that horse is to, is to figure out what cattle it is and to cut that cattle out and separate him from the herd and then to keep him From going back into the herd. So that, so just kind of stay with me for a minute. The the role of the cutting horse and its rider is to cut out and to separate from the herd. Now the Hebrew word sanctify, you know what it means? It means to cut and separate. And so when, when the Bible says that we are to be sanctified here, it means that God has looked at us And God has chosen us. And God has cut us out from the herd. He separated us unto Him. And what He wants to do is to keep us from going back. Now in a cutting contest, when they get done, they let the cow go back. But when God cuts and separates us, when He he sets us apart for Himself, the idea is that we won't go back. Now, some of you are sitting here going, the pastor just called me a cow. (laughs) How, you know, and and I did not. If I'm going to call you something, I'll call you a sheep because that's what the scripture says. But but you understand the idea. The the, the idea, it's a perfect description. Listen, when Jesus saved you and when Jesus saved me, he cut us out and he separated us and he wants to... He wants to shape us into who He's designed and He's prepared for us to be. And so, now, now I I don't want to get bogged down here, but I do want you to understand, uh, that, that we're cut out, that we're separated, we're set apart unto God. Now again, we talked about to be perfected means from a, from a positional standpoint, when you get saved, you're standing before God, you're perfect. You're, you're sanctified. You're set apart. But there's also a practical part of this. And the practical part of being set apart, the practical part of being cut out and separated, the, the practical part of that, listen, uh, to be perfected is our standing before God, but to be sanctified is our acting or our actions before God. in what God desires for you and me, is that our behavior line up with our belief, that our actions for God reflect our standing before God. In other words, that our life makes us look like that we're saved and our life makes us look like that we're born again. Uh, Titus two eleven uh, through fourteen says much about sanctification and talks about uh, the set apart life. Uh, also, now what's interesting um, in the perfecting part, God does all of that. My standing before God, your standing before it, God, God does all that. But this sanctifying part, it is a cooperative effort. God has a part, and you and me have a part. That's why in Philippians, uh, 2, I think it's Philippians 2 and, in verse 12 and 13, it tells us, uh, to work out our, our, our salvation with fear and trembling for as, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So think about this. God is at work in us. And so we're to work our salvation out of us. In other words, God is at work in our heart. God's given us the word. He's given us the spirit. He's given us the direction, but there's a, but we have a part in this sanctifying. And, and, and let me just tell you what that part is. It's really simple. Obedience. It's obedience. Now, uh, I was listening to uh, somebody this week and they identified three different imperatives and uh, about how we, how, how that's to look. What what is that to look like? If you're going to be sanctified, if you're going to live in obedience, uh, what does that need to look like? And he and and he pointed out some things, and and I kind of come up with my own my three three imperatives. If if you're going to if you're going to continue to be sanctified, cut out and separated unto God, there there are three behaviors that are absolutely imperative for your life. Let me just give them to you real quickly. Number one, you, you need to you need to consistently feed on the Word of God. You, you need to be feeding on the Word uh, of God. Uh, that needs to be a daily part of your habit uh, and, and of your lifestyle. The Bible says um, in in Psalm one, one and two, and we had this as a memory verse, buddy. I, I don't know if I can code it completely, uh, but it talks about blessed is the man uh, who walks not in the, with sinners and and sit you know and sits not with sinners and stands and doesn't stand with sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. If you want to be spiritually blessed and if you want to be spiritually set apart and saved, you got to feed on the Word of God. The great pastor evangelist from yesteryear, Vance Havner, was a master of one-liners. I, didn't, I never really heard him preach. I've read a few things by him. But he had some of the great one-liners. And, and one of his one-liners was this. Sin will keep you from the book Sin will keep you from the book or the book will keep you from sin. If, if you let sin keep you from the book, it will. But if you're in the book, it'll help keep you from sin. So you need to feed. We need, I need, we need to feed on the Word of God. Secondly, not only do we need to feed on the Word of God, but we need to walk by the Spirit of God. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Galatians. I want you to see two verses. Galatians chapter 5. Just really quickly, Galatians 5. Let's look first at verse 16. Notice what it says there. Uh, this is the beginning of a of, of kind of an excerpt on the Spirit. But, but Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he explains what the desires of the flesh are. Then he explains the fruits of the Spirit. But then look all the way down to verse 24. Um, or actually verse 25, where he says, if we live by the Spirit, so to walk by the Spirit kind of equals to live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So I want you to think about this. We're, I, I'm to live by the Spirit. You're to live by the Spirit. We're to be in the Word of God and there's a connection there. We don't have time to go into that. But, but think about this. To keep in step with the Spirit means that we do what we ought to do and what we know we should do. Because here's what I know Is true. What I know is true is as a believer, there's some things, I mean, sometimes we just know what we should do. And sometimes we know what we should not do. I mean, we just know that in our heart, shouldn't go there, shouldn't watch that, shouldn't read that. Shouldn't listen to that. You you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you got to be careful when you go stand in the grocery checkout line. There's just stuff you shouldn't read. I mean, there's stuff you shouldn't look at. I mean, it's just instinctively. It's not instinctive, but it's spiritually. We just know. There's stuff. And at the same time, we also know there's some things that I should do. I mean, I know I should get up and spend time in the Word of God. I know I should do that. You know you should do that if you're a follower of Jesus. I should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I should spend time with God. I mean, you know, and, 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 you know I should spend time with my family. And we just got to... I mean, there's just... Listen, there's just stuff we know. And, and, and what the writer is saying is if we keep in step with the Spirit, if we do what the Spirit leads us to do, we're going we're to be more like Jesus. We're going to be more sanctified. But the problem is... The problem is... It's not so easy to keep in step with the Spirit, right? I mean, it's easy. It's pretty easy to know what I shouldn't do, but it's pretty hard to not do what I shouldn't do. I mean, I, I, honest truth. Yesterday, uh, we decided to um, to go. We went and did a hike on the Beltway over or the Greenbelt. Not the Belt. Thank goes it was on the Beltway, but over the Greenbelt in Austin. And I don't, I don't know if you've driven in Austin on Saturday. It's detrimental to you, to your being spirit filled. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I don't know what it is. It's, it's something. So, so I mean, I, I get home, I mean, and, I, and I've, and I just got in a and I just got in some issues and, and, and I got home last night and I got ready to work on a sermon and I, listen, I had to go. I had to go sit along with Jesus and confess some bad habits and confess some, I mean, I, I, you know, this self-righteous, why did, why did you not let me move over? You know, and I, all these things. I just had this attitude and, and I just had to go get along and kind of fix what I let get messed up. And and so we're to walk by... Listen, we're to walk in step with the Spirit. But when we don't, when we don't, we need to feed on the Word of God. We need to walk by the Spirit. But when we blow it, which I did yesterday. I think I do every day, but I really did yesterday. Then we need to rest in the grace of God. We feed on the Word of God. We walk by the Spirit of God. But I'm telling you, if you're going to be sanctified, you've got to learn how to rest in the grace of God. Because we know there's stuff I shouldn't do. There, there's places I shouldn't go. But we need to rest. Let, let me just say this. Real quick, and I know my time's gone, but you got to see 1 John chapter 1. Listen, beginning in verse 8. Uh, he says to believers, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And again, he's writing to believers. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Listen to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You know why you need to feed on the word of God? He's he, God's writing these things to us that we may not sin. But he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Here's, our, here's one of our words from Hebrews. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so here's what I want to tell you. Listen, if you and I, are, if we're going to be sanctified, we've got to feed on the Word, we've got to walk by the Spirit, but we've got to learn how to rest in the grace of God. Because you're going to blow it. And when you blow it, you'll know it. And when you do, you come to God and say, God, I've sinned. And I've, you know, I've I've fell back into these bad habits. I've been self-righteous and arrogant and I've been proud and I've been, you know, angry and whatever it is. If we confess our sin, he says, he is faithful and righteous, and just, and He will forgive our sins. And so, as a believer, we've got, we, we've got to understand grace. We've got to understand mercy. We've got to understand forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, as we bring our time together to a close, I, I know sitting in the auditorium, many of us, God, in fact, most of us are believers, but I know there's a man here, Father, there's a lady here. Father, there's a student here. There's, a, there's a, an older child here that's never given their life to Jesus. They've never experienced what it means to be made perfect in God's sight. They don't know what it's like to have a right standing before God. And man, my prayer is that today they'd be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. And God, my hope is that right now in this moment, they would cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I know you died for me. Today I repent. Come live in my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. Friend, the Bible says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. I hope you'll do that. But Father God, there are many, again, most of us are believers and we've been perfected. Positionally, we're sanctified. But practically, not always so much. You've cut us out and separated us from the herd. And what you want to do, God, is you want to mold us and shape us. But if we're going to be molded and shaped, we've got to feed on your word. We, we've got to live and walk by your spirit. And, and we've got to learn to rest in your grace. And, Father God, I want to pray for the follower of Christ today. I pray for the men and women and the young people here that we'll feed on the Word, that we'll get in the Word. It'll be a daily thing. Father, I want to pray that we'll walk in step with the Spirit. And if we know we shouldn't, we won't. And if we know we should, we will. And if we blow it, like Paul talked about in Romans 7, 15, if the good we want to do, we don't, and the, the things we don't want to do, we do, if that's them like it is me so often, Lord, we'll just come rest in your grace and say, I have an advocate with the Father. And so God, help us to do that. Father, I pray this morning that you'd have your way in every heart and every life, and we'll give you the glory and the honor, and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.